this reminds me of my first experience in radio it was back in the early 80s. People with disability and mental health. There's always controversy with us. The mysteries of the mind and consciousness. And we might get to the bottom of something or we might start something new. We're going to run the gamut and we're going to have a good time. Waking Braves. No, not Waking Braves. We're Breaking Waves. Breaking Waves? Breaking Waves. Breaking Waves. Welcome back, Riley. Good to be back, John. You're listening to Radio Eastside. And we're back with the third episode of our show on pets. That's right, John. And we live in a time when the concept of an emotional support animal is becoming potential part of your daily life. Yeah, things are changing. Changing for the better in that regard. (laughs) Yeah, I seem to remember when I was a kid it was fairly unheard of for cafes and bars and things to be pet friendly. And of course it depends on where you go. Yeah, I think it depends on where you go. Like, I grew up in the country and um, I can remember, uh, although I wasn't allowed in the hotels, I remember the dogs were (laughs) in, uh, this was Singleton, in the bush. Uh, Things were pretty casual back then um, and there weren't so many um, regulations, which is what this is all about in the city with uh, businesses uh, under the control of council bylaws and I was chased out of a lot of cafes, restaurants, bars. Uh, When I had my first dog, Angie, this was 10 years ago, and when I talked to the management, if I bothered, uh, it was usually around health guidelines. The councils were pretty proactive at uh, prosecuting businesses if they let any animals into their cafes. And this kind of traumatised the the managers, though, being fined tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, And so I turned up with my seeing eye dog, Angie, and they would chase me out of the place and say, you know, I can't get fined. And I'd try, usually I'd whip out laminated copy of the Domestic Animal Act and explained to them that it was an assistance dog and that it was okay for her to be in public places with me. This hasn't happened to me um, in the last few years, but the cab thing is still a problem. I still have problems catching cabs because a lot of drivers just don't want a dog in their cab. Yes, and I imagine that some of them would not be aware of the obligation to take a service animal? Uh, I'm not sure about that. I think it's made clear to my, most of them. Uh, yeah, I don't know what their education program is like for taxi drivers these days, but it's certainly, um, you know, if I mention this to people, of course, the, the response is always that it's the law they have to take you. And I realise this, but I'm not one to want to force people, for example, who have a dog phobia, to be near a dog. I, I don't want to do that. So I always ask drivers if the dog is okay. But it's, you know, it's just difficult for me to get around because I rely on taxis and public transport and sometimes I have to catch a taxi. 
So it's a bit of a drama for me still. An example of how an emotional support animal can be used is that if someone, for example, registers their pet as an emotional support animal, then this person could be entitled to take this animal on a plane trip. And there's a lot of um, different industries and environments that are incorporating the aspect of pets as uh, or animals rather as a therapeutic uh, resource and certainly uh, in the nursing home in which my grandfather currently resides they have uh, an emotional support animal that comes in and says hello to everyone does the rounds and gets pats and in a number of the schools where I've worked there's been emotional support animals that go in there and they normally live with someone who's a staff member and just, um, you know, get brought in to, to enrich people's lives. And I'm sure that there's plenty of studies and research that shows the benefits from, from this kind of interaction between a person and a beast. Yeah, pet therapy. I don't think it's a new thing. But uh, certainly in the, uh, in the business world, in the regulatory world. I mean, we've been behind the curb for a long time because if you look at places like Europe, um, their public life, like <clears throat> public transport and pubs and cafes and the like, much more dog-friendly, you know, in somewhere like Germany or the UK than uh, in Australia. In Australia or I'll just say for Sydney, because that's what I know, you, in Sydney, if you leave the inner west, then it's going to be less hospitable, you know, to to having a dog. Yeah, we live in a really uh, regulated society here in Australia, uh, and there's good things about that, you know, you know the rubbish is going to be picked up and the footpaths will be uh, built the same way and the street signs put, you know, and the road lights at the same height, <laughs> which is not always the case overseas. But, you know, the downside of all the regulations is they bring these things in. Um, I don't know how they do it, sit around their council chambers and decide to invent a new law, and then they apply the law and it causes mayhem, <laughs> uh, which I think was the case when they um, when councils uh, started going after uh, cafes and restaurants for letting people have their pets sitting beside them the current laws um around it according to google according to the food health and safety laws is that the dogs are permitted but only in um outdoor seating areas but of course that varies you know it just depends where you go as we've said yeah, I remember when I uh, went and trained with Ivy, one of the places that we went to was a hotel and that was totally dog-friendly. <laughs> there were dogs all over the place, which was great because we got an opportunity to test for distraction and <laughs> for the my dog was very distracted by other animals, so it was, uh, it was a good little training exercise for her. But there were, like, dog bowls everywhere and everybody was quite pet-friendly. Obviously, that council weren't, weren't pushing their their health regulations in that regard. And, yeah, I guess it depends where you go. 
But the idea of pet therapy, although it's probably not a new thing, it's, uh, I think it might be a new thing in the business world. There seems to be a lot of businesses popped up that provide pet therapy type services. A lot of them are charitable organisations, I notice. And I remember actually when my mum and dad went to the nursing home there, uh, there was like a petting zoo or there were all these kind of like... What kind of creatures did they have, John? They had... Um, I was quite surprised. I turned up and there were bunny rabbits and potbelly pigs and ducks all running around the ground floor of their nursing home. Sounds delightful. Yeah, no, it was great. And they had this little area where they had chickens. Uh, they had like a warming light and they had all these newly hatched chickens and... And were your parents getting in on the action? no. No, but lots of people were. I'm sure they did. I mean, the chickens were around for quite a while. And my dad actually has always been a a dog person. We always had dogs. And he had to give up his pet when they moved in, started moving into uh, cared facilities. And he really missed his little friend. But it's, you know, it's pretty difficult for... um, they require a lot of care, basically, and that's back to the idea of the bargain or the deal that we do with with these creatures when we domesticate them and make them part of our lives. We have responsibilities to look after them, and they in turn provide us with services. And this is one we didn't talk about in the last couple of episodes, but the idea that um, there are th- therapeutic and uh, actually medicinal uh, aspects to uh, health and well-being when it comes to pets, and that's right. I have heard it stated by doctors who specialise in immunology that, generally speaking, a family uh, that has uh, a pet, say a dog or some cats, is going to be healthier in regards to disease and well-being, which is an interesting idea. Not something that gets uh, mentioned that often. When I was a child and I'd fall over and have a scrape or a cut or something, my mum would often say, let the dog lick it. Yeah, well, <laughs> dog kisses. You're certainly exposing yourself to the the doggy environment when you have a pet. And, and I guess the idea is that this is actually healthy. This is actually building up your immune system and your health. Um, in regards to, you know, pathogens and poisons or, that are out there that can make us sick. Do you think, so this healing aspect, and they often say that dog saliva has healing uh, properties. So do you think this healing aspect is the reason why they'll often lick you on the tip of your nose? Don't know about that. Oh, no, they do. They definitely lick themselves when they get a wound. It's probably cleaning it out. I'm not sure of the antiseptic qualities of dog spit. You know, in the wild, they have to endure all kinds of injuries and diseases, and just like we do. Um, and I guess the idea is that being exposed to this stuff to a certain level actually is beneficial rather than harmful. You know, in that period of time when we're little kids and we're going through all, you know, catching all those things that little kids catch, measles, mumps, you know, flus, colds. You know, I, I had a cold almost constantly when I was a little kid, apparently. And that's just part of our, our body 
our immune system, our metabolism, physiology, all becoming stronger and robust to handle the sort of environment we're living in. My nana always used to say, you've got to eat a peck of dirt before you die. You ever hear that one? No. If we do a search for therapeutic pets, what do we come up with? Well, there's a whole um, litany of websites directing you to various organizations that deal in this. Animaltherapeutics.org. Um, oh, Animal Assisted Therapy Autistic Children. Maybe we'll get some of that for you, John. Sorry. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting that apparently, as of relatively recently, the NDIS actually covers therapy animals. So not only do they pay for your dog food, but you could also use the NDIS to get horse riding lessons or something to that effect. If it was coming under the category of, you know, some kind of therapy, some kind of treatment for um, a person's mental health. Mental health? Yeah, things have certainly improved in that regard with the NDIS. When I, uh, I think I mentioned before, when I first got Angie, my first dog, and uh, the NDIS started and they, they enrolled me in the program and... Um, Actually, seeing eye dogs became they used to be a charity, a charity, um, but they were corporatized and amalgamated with the Royal Blind Society, that used to be another charity, uh, to form Vision Australia. And at that point in time, it was the guidelines were very <laughs> unclear. It was very difficult to access the funds, and I couldn't even uh, find out how to get them to pay for my pet's dog food, which they do now. They didn't know how to do that, so things have, things have improved a lot. And now, uh, as you said, you can uh, get someone to bring a bunny rabbit or a ferret around for therapeutic yeah. uh, treatment. Now, horses are used as a therapeutic animal and um, very insightful sort of animals. And the horse and uh, humankind relationship, that's got to be one of the oldest animal-person symbioses. I mean... Yeah, right up there with dogs and um, cows maybe. Of course, the horse, the utility that a horse provides is so obvious um, because one can ride on it and, you know, cover great distances. And um, But just like with any animal, fostering a positive relationship uh, with the horse, you know, psychologically on an emotional, energetic level is uh, so important. Yeah, I think they're really responsive to our emotional state, horses, and I think that one of the the skills in becoming a um, getting on well with horses and being able to work with them is is that kind of emotional connection. Yes, and we have a clip now actually from the TV series Yellowstone, and just for a bit of context, this. Uh, 
young woman is trying to get on a horse and she keeps getting bucked off. And so um, this uh, farmhand tells her how to get her head right so that she can ride the horse without an issue. Think about this, a horse can feel a fly land on its back. Imagine all it's feeling from you. Every emotion, every thought. If you're thinking it, you bet he's feeling it. Just get on him again and make your body tell him that everything's gonna be okay. Come on. I wish I'd met that guy when I was a little kid. I used to climb on the back of random horses uh, living in pastures around my place and I got thrown off a lot of them. But I have a reoccurring dream, Riley, about horses and about a place called Horsetown. <laughs> and who goes there? Well, I, I want to go there <laughs> because it's a place where, where I could actually ride horses around as a form of transport. And the great thing about horses is they're pretty clever and... Uh, you know, they kind of remember where to go once they've been there a few times. So, you know, I'd love to be in a place where I could go out and jump on the horse and, you know, and say, take me to the shops. Uh, of course, cities and most country towns are not set up for horses. You know, like in, uh, in the old days where every, uh, every shop had like a railing out the front where you could... Uh, Put your horse. I think you'd be in mortal danger these days if you tried to <laughs> ride around on a horse. But I've been looking up north. There's still a pretty big horse culture uh, up in the top end in a lot of little uh, country towns where they have rodeos. And so I guess I need to go on a fact-finding mission and see if I can find a place like that where I can move to. Well, at least the general region is established. It's interesting when you look at what are the most popular animals on these for this emotional support service <laughs> and what we find, what John and I found looking into it is that um, seemingly cats do not rate up there at the top of the list. Don't seem to rank that highly. Why, why would that be? I thought I saw a pretty cat. I did, I did tell a putty cat. Cats, cats. Cats kind of keep to themselves. Yes, they are much more self-contained, generally speaking, than dogs. And while there's a lot of exceptions to the rule. Fiercely independent creatures. That's it. That's Sovereign it. citizens. Yes. Now, in terms of unusual kind of pets... I've, in the past, looked after rats and I did find, I have found in my experience with rats, looking after them and also um, 
visiting people that have them. Rats actually can express a lot more pet-like qualities than people realize. Like, they are capable of responding to you and and, uh, showing affection. Fantastic little creatures. I had mice, pet mice, when I was a kid. Never a rat, but I actually tried to... um, Well, I did sort of domesticate a rat that got into my place here, where I live now, um, a few years ago. And I don't claim to have turned this animal into a pet or even really domesticated too much, but I did do a deal with this animal. It used to scare my dog. This was back when I had Angie, and Angie was quite scared of it, and it would come out at night time. We couldn't... uh, It was winter, so it wanted to stay inside where it was warm. And... Of course, they kind of sleep in the daytime and hunt at night time. And so it would come out when we went to bed and it would rampage around the kitchen and, um, you know, they crawl over every, every part of their environment, rats and mice. And uh, it would get into the garbage and create a mess. And so I did a deal with it and I started putting out a little bowl of dog food, dog pellets for it. And it started to eat this offering that I put out and stopped ripping up the, uh, the house looking for food, which was uh, a much better, <laughs> much better situation. And we kind of cohabitated. I did try and catch it a couple of times and I made um, all kinds of mouse traps and managed to catch it once, but it escaped. Um, eventually, when summer uh, rolled around, it, I guess the call of uh, the wild, the call of nature, it went off to start a family and it left me. Must have run out the door one day in the daytime when I had the door open. Well, because rodents have shorter lifespans, maybe the rat will get reincarnated as a person who will help you one day. Well, that's a nice idea. I like that. Another unusual pet experience I had was looking after stick insects when I was 15. Because I went to a school that I was bored, like staying at. Uh, but during the um, summer holidays, I took some stick insects home with me in a glass enclosure. And they were generally quite docile. But I found that when I put on some really raucous, upbeat music, they started frantically leaping about everywhere these stick insects were going crazy and they don't actually leap about that much no so they were <laughs> they were obviously responding to uh this the audio stimuli which is interesting i turned it off cuz i presumed that they were finding it distressing yeah so. no doubt um i've seen plenty of research on plants reaction to music and also seen uh different um environments with animals, cats and dogs and birds, where they play different kinds of music and kind of study the way the, the, uh, the critters behave. And um, they are very reactive to music. This is another thing, a resource that's available to the modern animal person is the litany of audio files and videos online that is music for cats or music for dogs and it's this music that's supposed to have a calming effect on these creatures uh, maybe it's more psychological for the owners I don't know I, I haven't looked into the the science behind it I think I've always had a kinship for 
living things, even if I didn't know the best ways to treat them as a kid. But I remember once as a kid crying, watching a cockroach die in a bathtub. Because even though I didn't like cockroaches, the death was just so protracted that it upset me. And there was another occasion on which I stepped on a baby snail and I started crying. I was you know, near inconsolable and I remember my mother said to me to try to comfort me. She said, he had a short but happy life. <laughs> well, that's half a good result. Well, it all depends. Do you want quality or quantity? We've firmly established that. Animals have a therapeutic effect on people, but... Of course, it's a two-way street. We can also have a beneficial impact on animals, the animals that we choose to make our pets, and we can enrich their lives. And I think this kind of approach is reflected in the statistics in the amount of people in Australia who, get, who choose to get their pets from the animal shelter because these are the animals that are in need of tender love and care. Indeed. So if you're in the need for some love and companionship, get on down to your local dog pound and find a hound or maybe even a cat. Do they have cats, Riley, in dog pounds? Yeah, you can get cats from the animal shelter if that is what you want. Yes, I think we have made our case. Pets are good for us. They can make us healthy, they entertain us, they protect us and look out for us, they guide us, and they connect us to the natural world and make our lives more meaningful. And on that note, we're off. This has been John and Riley on Breaking Waves. Thanks for listening. We love bringing it to you. And we'll see you down the road. Bye for now.
You're listening to People Powered Radio, proudly supported by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The Community Broadcasting Foundation resources community-owned and operated media stations just like this one that connect people and tell vital local stories so that we all enjoy a more vibrant, inclusive Australian culture and healthy democracy. Find out more about our work at cbf.com.au.